Francisco. Uh, I just finished West of Home, West From Home, a collection of letters that she wrote to her husband, Almanzo Wilder, when she was visiting her daughter in San Francisco in 1915 during the Pan, uh, Pan American, not Pan American, Pan Californian, whatever that big, the thing that the Palace of Fine Arts was built for, right? Uh, in 1915, it was a huge, the Panama Canal was open and, and it was a huge World's Fair and she writes all about it in these letters to Almanzo Wilder, Manly, her, her husband. Uh, anyways, it's, it's amazing. So yesterday, I went around San Francisco and I visited the house that Laura Ingalls Wilder stayed in when she was staying with her daughter Rose who was working for the San Francisco Bulletin, which was a... Uh, you know, newspaper in the city. There were many newspapers in the city, I guess, in 1915, which is kind of amazing. Hey, Latoya made it in her Uber. Yeah. All right. Um, so, but uh, that's so that's what I was going to talk a little bit about on the AltaCast today, uh, only because I am uh, just super obsessed with Laura Ings Wilder and the concept that she was here in San Francisco in 1915 is really neat and I read all these letters and she lived in uh, I went to her house yesterday because um, why not and she has her address in in the book here and it was on Vallejo Street and the, the house is still there and it's still standing and had a little redone to it but it's still the same architecture and I guess it was for the guy who was one of the main architects on the 1915 the planning of that World's Fair here in San Francisco. Anyways, it's a weird history today. What, what's your relationship with uh, Little House on the Prairie? Were, were you a fan? As no. Kid? You weren't a fan? <laughs> I, I was not a fan. Do You didn't read the books? I didn't like it. You didn't read? You didn't. I'm from the Midwest. That's I prairie know, but, country. I, I've, but I would think that you would have tuned to it even more. No, I hated it. No. My mom, my mom even hated the fact that I hated it. She loved the Little House on the Prairie and stuff like that, and she she the read long the books. She yeah, has. she read the books when she was a little girl. She was quite fond of them. I just never got into it. Oh, I, <laughs> I love, I loved uh, all of her books. I read them uh, like a crazy person when I was little. I I still have a couple copies that were my childhood copies. Um, I I went through the library the other day and I reread the entire compendium or whatever of books. I finally read Farmer Boy, which I'd never read, which is her um, fictionalized history of her husband, Almanzo Wilder, and on his really wealthy farm in upstate New York. Uh-huh. The thing I love about Laura Ingalls Wilder's writing so much is that it attunes to food. She um, was an impoverished kid and driving around on the wagon trains and the whole thing, and they had to work with all the, you know, cornmeal and all they had, salt pork or whatever. So when she dreams of this life of her husband in this upstate New York, it's all about food and like the richness of this. And and he's eating slice after slice of pie. And at dinner, there's like four different kinds of pie. (laughs) But I I actually have this book that's the Laura Ingalls Wilde, the Little House on the Prairie cookbook. And they remade all of the um, recipes that they, she talks about in the book and they did a bunch of research and all the food and are grits in there well grits that was specifically southern but they dealt they dealt with cornmeal, cornmeal. In, in, a, in a billion different ways I don't know if they actually talk about the ha- the specific the hominy corn 
Um, but they were growing corn, and that was the whole thing, is trying to be able to bake bread out of your own flour that you grew and then milled. And, I mean... So and butter. And butter, yes. And Butter's so there's a whole important. thing about how you make your own sure. butter. And, uh, well, they had, they had such a profitable dairy farm, Almanzo Wilder's family. They had this... Um, a, like a barrel with a trap door at the front and it was on like a rocker and so you'd push it up and down and it because they had so many cows and so much milk I mean because you could do it in a small churn or in like if we were going to make butter here today we would you know just put cream in a in right. a mason jar because that's but how hi- hipsters do it and then you just shake it and you just keep shaking it and we could shake it back and forth <laughs> and then what happens is that all of that fat which would normally whip into cream it gets past the cream and it turns into butter because all the fat like sticks together and then you have to squeeze out that way that butter the buttermilk the milk from the butter in be- that's in between and then you wash the butter with water and you salt it and you mix it around and I'm you learning put it into something today well I learned all of this from Laura Ingalls Wilder in the <laughs> book the- so anyways I'm totally obsessed um, she lived at the top of Vallejo Street, and this is beautiful. The view from there is amazing. And there's I didn't a, know she even lived here. Wow. So, yeah, so in 1915, she came uh, from Missouri, because that's where she was from, from. Uh, and where Almanzo was living, because that's where the letters go back and forth to. And so she stayed at her daughter Rose's, her daughter Rose and, and her husband Gillette, which is so funny in these letters. She did not like that guy. She's constantly, like, she's like, he can't get a job, and Rose is the one working, and she's working for a newspaper and, like, taking care of everybody and giving her five bucks a week to hang out with her. And these in these things, she's talking about the chickens. This, and, okay, the cool thing about these letters is that they really happened in 1915. You don't get Almanzo's side back. You only get Laura's side that she's writing. But this is before she even wrote the Little House in the Prairie books. Really? This is just when she, and... At the end, there in the in the appendix of it, when she went back, she wrote um, an article condensed by Laura, which appeared in the Missouri Ruralist on November 20th, 1915. So when she got back from visiting the World's Fair, look at these great pictures. Uh, when she got back from visiting the World's Fair, she wrote articles about it because that was one of the things she did, which I'm so excited about because this is in like 1915, and she was like, she's like a feminist. She's like pre-suffragist kind of stuff. And anyways, I'm, I'm totally... I like how you get geeked out. I, well, I love... I've always known that I love Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I love Little House on the Prairie because of what it stands for as like this Americanism that was. Now we're lazy pieces of shit. But there was a time when we would set out west with nothing, right? Except the stuff and the caravan. We're like, I'm going to make a better life. And... There's, a, there's some great stuff. Um, she talks about her father in, in the books where Pa's like, I'm making a bet against the government, Caroline, which is the, which is the wife. It's, it's that for $16, you would get 160 acres, and you'd have to homestead. You have to live on it for three years before it actually was yours. So it was like, I can do it. And then the, her first four years, this other book, which is, it is so sad. She, she had a son who died. And she accidentally burned their house down. They didn't. They they did not do very well as like trying to run their own farm. It's it was, but it's hard. There was like a famine, and that's the plight of the farmers. Like we used to believe in that, and now it's this huge corporate factory farming, and it's gone from producing and like okay. So this is such a tangent, but there's a food guy. Then uh, they talk about weight and diabetes and Americans and, and, and obesity and all these kinds of things. And he says, no foods 
are necessarily bad. If you ever, if you want a slice of pie, he says, don't go out and get a slice of pie. You make, make that pie. pie. You go and you pick the apples and you yeah. bring them back and you spice them up and you, uh, that way, you know what you're putting in to your own recipe. Well, and you make it exactly. And, but it, then you can, if you, if you want to eat a pie, you have to make the pie, all that work that goes into it. The problem is that it's just so easy now where we can go get, if you want apple pie, you can go to McDonald's and you can get a deep fried weird substitute of apple yeah. pie, like apple substitute, or you can. It has something to do with like the fact of the effort and the hard work that it takes in order to get something that you want as for it, you having it handed to you. And I think that's what the problem is. I want some butter. I need to go. First, I have to keep the cow alive, right? Exactly. First, right. you've got to make it. You got to make the cow it. have a baby so that it will milk, and you have to make it your friend so it doesn't hate you after you eat its baby. <laughs> and then you make them. You take the milk, and you, you know, you have to either heat. Well, now we have to. I guess we heat pasteurize. But back in the day, milk would spoil. You had to use it either turn it into butter right away, or use it immediately, or make it into make cheese. Something quickly. Or yogurt. I mean, I don't even know what they're. It's all in the. Anyways, I'm obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder because that's the way it used to be. You're out on this, like, you have to grow your own vegetables. You have to grow your own corn to feed your cattle or your own, um, and I guess, like, whatever cows eat, hay. Hay, grass. You have to grow your own grass to then cut the grass to feed the feed to get the food like all that stuff that's why it was like an all day you know kind of work working on the farm you know yeah you would have to get up at four or five in the morning and you wouldn't stop until like five or six well if you don't milk your cows at the same time morning and night i learned this from farmer boy they won't give as much milk so you have to be consistent there's no sleeping in there's no snooze button no no, not at all. Unless you don't want to eat. Unless you, well, so I have this idealized version of America because of the way I read the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, the Little House on the Prairie books as a kid, and sort of what I think that shaped who I am and my political stance. A lot of it are those books because I have this idealized, like, American image, and it really is. There's a lot of feminist stuff in there, too. Um, it's... And it's still old-timey. But the reason there's feminist stuff is that Laura wrote these books in, like, the 40s and 50s. And, uh, but that's even pre... Anyways, if I was going to do... If I was going to have some sort of, like... You know, there's... When you, when you think about teaching or think about teaching in a college, like, level or whatever, and you have to think of your syllabus and what would you be doing and what would you be bringing to, to the academic four that could change sort of the landscape, like... Because I, I hate, like, when you teach the same things over and over. But I really think that, like, looking at her books and looking through it with the lens of feminism, even though it's set in this time where women are equal in that, when the way she writes it, because no one could live without the work they're doing. You all have to put your foot in. You And, and, and exactly. You know, and it's not the fact that, you know, she, you know, women back then were just in the kitchen no they're out on the farm doing some of the hard work that you know people stereotype that that would be a man's job you know sometimes women were the ones that would have to slaughter the cow yeah and all that so i mean 
Well, everyone partook in the, I mean, I, they have a bunch of slaughtering scenes in her books and uh, when they kill the pig and everyone comes out and, and they talk about it, you get the big kettle of water and you boil it and then you gotta kill the pig and then take all the big men and dip them in and you take the see, hair I, off and then you. See that, that's what I find like very fascinating too about, you know, seeing something that you, you killed yourself knowing that the fact that you, you're doing it and that you know this is gonna be your dinner. And as for us, how we are today, we get squirmish. I don't, but some people get squirmish about seeing a fish with the head. Right. You right. know, like little stuff like that. It's sure. just like, you yeah. know, it, it just sounds very odd to me because I'm like, why? How did we do it? How did we change everyone from 1860s, this, I can do it myself. I'm an American. Being an American is being self-sufficient and doing things on your own. How did we move within 100 years to, I like everything Technology. out of a freezer and... Technology. Because there was no time. Back in these days, when you were trying to be a subsistence farmer, you actually had to live. You, you had to. Things have changed now, where we have all this leisure time. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to go back to those times. Oh, though. come on! I, I want to. I have no. Sitting interest. around a fire when everyone's reading the newspaper, and you're like, "Wow, we got the newspaper from See, New York." But I guess I kind of had that kind of upbringing where the TV wasn't always on, and like my grandparents, you know, my grandparents did have like property and land and they would grow their tomatoes and stuff because i'm from southwest missouri and that's where laura yes, eagles right yeah. yeah that's where she's from she's writing to uh, uh, mansville mansville missouri yeah. um and so like that kind of stuff was kind of natural to me i do i actually really appreciate the fact that now there's this whole new movement of people starting urban farms now and actually trying to reintroduce that in today's society because I totally agree the fact of the matter that we gotten so lazy like certain people don't know how so to cook at all like why can't don't even you cook at all I'm sorry yeah. this is where I start to sound like an old 1950s kind of like I think women should know how to cook something I think everyone should know how to cook I something. really think I, uh, men, yeah I do women, think men children. yeah I but, think that if, I think that if your fourth grader third grader can't come home and feed themselves not out of a microwave if they can exactly they they should be able to understand how to cook an egg cook an egg in multiple or, ways and yeah. choose the way they want to do it. you know what there are many ways to it's cook a survival eggs. scale you, you get to choose the way you like it the best some you might like it soft boiled you might like it hard boiled and you might like a poached and just like Here's what it, what you know you know what her books are about it's survival it's survival skills knowing how to cook and knowing how to do these things are survival skills it's Chicken like swimming husbandry yeah <laughs> love chickens so where i visited yesterday was 1019 vallejo street in san francisco and here's a picture of it in 1973 but it looks the same right now except I wonder that who lives there uh, a very rich person uh there's there's an open space next to it like they have a front yard even and wow. then it goes into um a san francisco park and it's all on a hill it has beautiful views i took some pictures on my silly tiny phone i'll show you from the top of the hill did and you go in no no it's somebody lives there damn i just i mean i'm just really weird and i'm obsessed with Laura. like yesterday i was like i'm gonna take the day off and i'm gonna find it so here's the thing i'm like looking at the map and i'm like what muni goes there no muni goes to russian hill it's this it's the cable car so oh, you can actually wow. sort of get all on the cable car and i was i'm sitting here and going like i can imagine her and she talks about it like it's this charming little hill and there's a little thing built into the hill and they now it's a park so it's the charming little thing obviously is gone but um this is the view from where she be her front yard would be 
It's at the top of Russian Hill. It's beautiful. And um, I, I, I just, wow, this is, this is the house itself. I mean, I just, I put the 190 or the 1019. But it's, it's just crazy because I'm sitting here looking at the, this is another view from the, I mean, it's at the top of Russian Hill. Look how gorgeous that view. Wow. Yeah. You so, guys would be jealous of this view. Well, it's everybody can go there is the thing, is that there's this park up there and it's public space and isn't that lovely. But I don't think anybody knows about it. So um, this is the house, the backside of the house. It looks pretty much the same. Uh, uh, and so the whole point of her being there is that her daughter wrote for the bulletin. I mean, it's, she was a woman with a job in 1915, and her husband didn't. And it's um, the funniest letter is when she sends it back, and, and it's the daughter who says, your mom, your, your wife's getting fat. Oh, <laughs> no. Because of these scones. But so then when, when this is, oh, I'll read this. This is what, when she comes back, she writes this, uh, this is, uh, this is called Magic in Plain Foods, an article condensed by Laura, which appeared in the Missouri Ruralist on November 20th, 1915. A thought came to me while I wandered among the exhibits in the food products building at the San Francisco Exposition that Aladdin, with his wonderful lamp, had no more power than the modern woman in her kitchen. She takes down the receiver to telephone her grocery order, and immediately, all over the world, the monstrous genii of machinery are obedient to her command. All the nations of the world bring her their offerings to her door. Fruits from South America, Hawaii, Africa, teas and spices from India, China, and Japan, olives and oil from Italy, coffee from strange tropical islands, sugar from Cuba and the Philippines. This modern magic works both ways. The natives of all these faraway places may eat the flour made from the wheat growing in the fields outside our kitchen windows. I shall never look at Missouri wheat fields again without thinking all the breads of the nations exhibit where natives of eight foreign nations in the national costumes were busy making the breads of their countries from our own American flour. We use raisins, flour, tea, breakfast food, and a score of other common things without a thought of the modern miracles that make it possible for us to have them. I see. I love her. This is 1915 and I still feel like... Anyways, one is a greater feeling of respect for the flour used daily after seeing the infinite pains taken to turn out the perfect article. From the time the wheat is poured into the hoppers until in our kitchens we cut the string that ties the sack, the flour is not exposed to the outer air. It is not touched by human hands until we dip the flour sifter into it. Ten years ago, too, we seeded our raisins by hand ourselves or bribed the children to the task by giving them a share to eat. Today we buy seeded raisins in boxes without giving a thought to how the seeding is done. I mean, I've never even yeah. thought of this in the 1915. She's blowing my mind, right? <laughs> She's already talking like ahead of the time. Like, cause that was like the man- starting of the manufacturing a lot of like foods, processed foods and sure. what have you. Yeah. Seeding the raisins. I didn't even, I thought they just had seedless raisins, but that's like <laughs> genetic engineering, right? Like that's totally different. Uh, uh, today we buy seeded raisins in boxes without giving a thought to how the seeding is done. You may be sure of this. These packaged raisins are clean. They are scientifically clean, sterilized by steam and packed hot. In the food products building, I saw these machines at work. This is the process. Sun-dried muscat grapes are stemmed by machinery, then sent through 26 feet of live steam at 212 pounds pressure. From this, they fall onto a steel sawtooth cylinder 
and pass under three soft rubber rolls, which crush the raisin and loosen the seeds. Then they strike a corrugated steel roll, which throws out the seeds. The raisin passes on, is lifted from the cylinder by a steel rake, and dropped into a paraffin paper-lined boxes, which are closed while the raisins are still hot from the steam sterilizing. She's really good at describing things. It's yeah, it's, I'm getting a visual of everything. It's because um, her sister Mary was blind, and her mom said her, she was blinded by uh, the scarlet fever settled in, settled in her eyes. And um, she, was, she was blind, so they always said, Laura, you must see for Mary. You must, you must talk for her and see for her. And so that's why she became such a good writer, I think. Um, space forbids that I should describe the scores of exhibits at this enormous food products building devoted to the preparation of different foods, a task which always has been considered women's work. I can briefly mention the Japanese rice cakes, tiny bits of paste half an inch long and no thicker than paper. The smiling oriental in charge. Wow. Right. There's some serious racist stuff. She also it's doesn't like in Indians. She talks about their savages and she doesn't like the darkies from uh, from New Zealand. She's like with their she she has a very biased eye toward she don't like no. colors. Right, exactly. But <laughs> I mean, but that's what they call people oriental. Oriental is a rug. And, and, and Asian is a person. Uh, the smiling oriental in charge drops them into boiling olive oil, and they puff into delicious-looking brown rolls three inches long. They look as toothsome, toothsome as a homemade donut. But to your wild amazement, when you bite into them, there is nothing there. <laughs> Rice cakes. I don't know. It's just funny that she's talking about him in 1915. Um, I must say one word about the rose cakes. Delicious cakes baked in the form of a rose and as good as they are beautiful. And I am sure nobody leaves the exposition without speaking of these Scotch scones. Everybody eats them who can reach them. They are baked by a Scotchman from Edinburgh who turns out more than 4,000 of them daily. They are buttered, spread with jam, and handed over the counter as fast as the four girls can do it. And the counter is surrounded by a surging mob all day long. So they talk about these scotch so, things. And her, her daughter's like, she's getting fat. She eats like three of them a day. Because <laughs> it was, the, I'm sure that the fair was really fun. Uh, as I went from booth to booth, they gave me samples of the breads they had made with our, our American flour. The little bland Chinese girl in her bright blue pajama costume. The smiling high-cheeked Russian peasant girl. The Hindu in his gay turban. The swarthy black-eyed Mexican. All of them eager to have me like their national foods. And I must say, I did like most of it so well that I brought the recipes away with me and passed them on to you. So she makes, she has then, I won't put you through the recipes, but she makes Russian forest Mexican tamale loaf, which sounds wow. amazing. Okay, this one I will read because this is a great idea. Okay. And I was like... Give it to me. Okay, one pound veal. You could use whatever meat you want, yeah. but it feels good. One onion, two cloves of garlic, a tablespoon of chili powder, one can of tomatoes strained, 24 green olives chopped. I don't know if I'd go for the green olives. Boil the meat until very tender. Take from broth, cool, and chop. Return to the broth, add salt to taste, add the onion and garlic chopped fine, then the tomatoes, garlic, and chili powder. Let all come to the boiling point. It sounds a lot like chili, right? Mm -hmm. Then add enough yellow cornmeal to make as thick as mush, turn into molds, and set aside to cool. The loaf may be served either cold or sliced and fried. Right? You use the broth to cook the corn, to make the thing with the meat. And then it's like, a, it, I mean, it's almost like Italian, like an Italian polenta, but it's, with... It, yeah, it sounds like that, or um, a papadena, which is like a uh, Cuban 
fried, deep fried with mashed potato um, and uh, beef. A little bit, it sounds like that. Actually, wow. it's getting me hungry. I, I mean, I, I just thought this. I was like, I was like, that's a really good idea, and it doesn't really sound Mexican to me. It sounds kind of Tex-Mex, but that's okay. <laughs> but then uh, she also says German honey cake, Ita- Italian white taglarini. Basically, how do you make your own pasta? Sauce for taglarini, croissants, and Chinese almond cakes. And these are what she brings back in 1915 to Missouri. And I'm like, high five, Laura Ingalls Wilder. <laughs> well, I mean. She was, she loved to cook. Well, and she loved food. Food. I, yeah. Bring, bring her back a little bit, the music. So this is, you guys are listening to the background, obviously in the 70s. This became a popularized, you know, show with Michael Landon. Did you, did you, you didn't watch the show either, did you? I was forced to watch it sometimes. Oh, gotcha. I'm not kidding. I was forced. That's why I didn't like it. Because I remember it would come on like sometimes in the afternoon. And by the point when I was growing up, there were repeats. Right, 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 right. Um, so yeah, like my grandmother or my mom or somebody would be like, "No, you're gonna watch this show and appreciate it." You know, it's Laura Ingalls Wilder. She's from Missouri. They, you know, and I get what they were trying to do. You know, because at least I know of what she is and what she's about in her writing. But I just was never. Well, the show was what Michael Landon was about. I mean, it's it's heavily peppered with Christianity. Yeah. It's heavily peppered with morality. The morality thing is just really what... I think that's another thing I didn't like about it, because I was a heathen when I was a kid, too. Well, and, and I, I was a super Christian as a kid, so I, I kind of think I liked that part of it, but now I really kind of disagree with it because I've read the books, and the, although in the books, like, they talk about church and they're clearly Christians, it's not... You're not like completely beat over the head by it. Like the but show became, it became this really moralistic, this thing for us to, in the seventies, be like, these are the morals we want to instill in people. <laughs> and Which, look at, uh, I like how like the actors turned out. <laughs> how did they turn out? I mean, Melissa Gilbert was the head of SAG for a while, yeah. or the Screen Actors Guild or whatever. Didn't she have a nasty drug problem? No, no. Or what was I don't the think other one? so. We can look it up. Yeah. Melissa Gilbert. And then Michael Landon was no angel either. Well, so he died of cancer. I th- was he? He was he? Am I making I think up? he was, was like he a... He, he was gay. Right? There's something. I think you're Why mixing Why am I whispering that, it? You're, you're, I think you're mixing that up with the Brady Bunch dad. Okay, the Baby Bunch he dad. He was. Yeah. But there was something scandalous about Michael Landon too. Was there something scandalous about... Yeah. I remember reading about it years ago. I can't remember. But, uh, I mean... I guess you have, uh, I don't know. I know. I, I just, I, I just, I love her. Uh, but I, I just, I love the feminist bent on it. I think that it's, it just, uh, it makes me, it makes me really happy. Th- this is also super cool because she's describing the 1915, um, fair in a really unique way. And, and I'm so like glad to hear about like this is September 13th 1915 100 years ago yeah so here's so she this is like she was living on the side of Telegraph here Uh, so she says Manly dear uh, San Francisco September 13th 1915 I am perched on the side of Telegraph Hill watching the ships go by and I saw this yesterday too I watched ships go by there are 26 ships in sight and 10 small sailboats 
One of them is a hay boat. It looks like a load of hay floating on the water with three sails on it. There are about 3,000 tons of hay on board, 1,000 below decks and 2,000 on decks, and it looks strange to see a load of hay floating on the water. It has come down some river from the alfalfa farms. Just now, a British trading ship is going past passed outward bound, perhaps to be sunk by a German submarine. So it was during, this was right before World War One too, so it, it was interesting. And oh, it's before true. Prohibition, so they, she has some interesting things to say about alcohol, too. Nice. Um, it, is, it is the freight steamers, you know, that they particularly want to get. And it has gone past now, and I hear the blast of its whistle. I suppose it's meeting some other ship. Now in the immediate foreground is the white ferry steamer, and farther over an orange-colored exposition ferry bound for the exposition grounds. There are two lumber ships going by loaded with lumber. One of them is coming into the pier. It is loaded, and a little, it is loaded a little unevenly and tips some to one side. I suppose it lists to the starboard or to the larboard or something. One sailing ship with the dirty-looking sails with clean new patches on them has sailed in and dropped anchor. The sails are running down. Now someone is getting over the side into a little boat. This ship looks like a tramp, and I think it is. The ship is going by now that came from the Hawaiian Islands with a cargo of sugar. It is empty and riding high on the water. A Hawaiian passenger ship has passed bound for the Hawaiian Islands, and Uncle Sam's gray battleship is lying anchored a little way out. Little white yachts are scurrying among the larger ships. There are six piers in sight with all kinds of ships tied to them. One is a British freighter with the flag flying, glad to be safe for a while, I suppose. I mean, another thing. Another is a Greek ship with several strings of flags flying in the wind. They say that is a sign it will leave soon. The hills across the bay look beautiful through the fog, and Berkeley and Oakland show dimly. The tide is rising now and pouring through the Golden Gate. Now, the bridge wasn't there. She's just talking about, like, they called it the Golden Gate, Golden this, Gate. Area, this area where the ships went through, which I didn't know that either. Um, I can see now, uh, I can see just how far it has come in from the white caps on the water. Goat Island is right in front. That is where the Naval Training School is. One little sailing boat has just gone by, sailing so close to the wind that the tip of the sail touches on the water now and then. And the man in sight is standing on the other edge of the boat, out on the very edge to keep it from tipping over. I could watch these ships go in and out and write to you about them all day. Rose is thinking of moving out here. There's a little house she can rent, which faces all of this, it is built on the side of the hill, and there is a balcony overhanging a steep hillside. It looks over the roofs and houses below, and the piers, and the beautiful bay is spread out like a picture. An artist friend of Rose's, a dear girl, is moving into another little house right next to the one Rose can get, and the places are rather dilapidated, but can be fixed very cozily. She has a dog. I'm glad Inky is more cheerful and that you are getting along all right. Rose and I are going to do some work on stories together this week. Um, anyways, it's just neat. It's just such neat stuff that it's her, you know, vision of what everything looked like in 1915 and just to walk around and see the hills. And, and then I start looking on the internet like old-timey photos from 1900, <laughs> San Francisco. And, and there's bridge Right. Pre-bridge and just it's just such I don't know I think that it's such just such a weird and cool history and I mean she even talks she even goes over to San Jose and she spends a little time in Berkeley and in um, Oakland and um, she went to Santa Clara's and Los Gatos and um, it's just every I recommend everybody oh here's the Oakland thing um, so there's this Greek theater in Berkeley I don't know if it still exists but it sure sounds exciting. Um, this is what she says about 
Berkeley. She's kind of pissed about it. These peers. Uh, so Sunday afternoon, I went over to Berkeley on the ferry steamer about seven miles across the bay. We had a little lunch with us and ate it at the top of one of the Berkeley hills. It is lovely crossing the bay. I always get at the front of the boat on the lower deck to be as close near to the water as possible. And then I stand and hold to the rope and let the uh, boat lift and sway under my feet and the spray and wind beat me in the face and watch the gulls. After we cross the bay, we take an electric train, which is out on the end of a long pier. I must tell you about these piers reaching out into the bay. The water is shallow on the side, and they are dredging from the bottom of the bay and taking the rock and dirt to build out the shore. It is made land for one mile out now where these piers run, and they are filling in between the piers. There are several of the piers. Oh, I don't know how many. A dozen, I should guess. And the cities of Oakland and Berkeley are doing the work, and they have appropriated $10 million to build land out as far as Goat Island, which is about another mile, making two miles in all of made land. Hmm. I guess this is Emeryville. Oh, wow. Uh, they are doing this to save five minutes in time from Oakland and Berkeley to San Francisco. Oakland is once and again half as large as Kansas City, and Berkeley is about as large as Oakland. But they really are suburbs of San Francisco. And if it were not for the Bay, they would be all one city. I think this wow. is all just really cool, weird stuff from 1915. Um, people live in Oakland and Berkeley and come every morning to their downtown places of business in the city, San Francisco. And it is to save five minutes on each trip every day for these people that the $10 million is to be spent. <laughs> it's just so funny. Like... It still goes on. It still goes on. Berkeley is the city of homes and is beautiful, both in its natural scenery and its buildings. Street after street of handsome residences, not apartment houses, lovely parks, and the University of California with its numbers of buildings and wide, beautiful drives and walks. And I went all around and through them to see the Greek theater. This is an outdoor theater built on the hillside, which forms a natural amphitheater. It is built exactly like an old Greek theater, and it is the only copy of it. It is the only copy of it in existence today. I want to know if this still exists. It's, it is. It does? Mm -hmm. The stage and the dressing rooms are a stone building at the foot of the hills, or rather the dressing rooms are the building and the stage is a cement platform with no roof. There are large stone columns in the front of the dressing rooms dividing the opening on the stage and the center circle and the stage is a sawdust ring for wrestling matches, etc. Yeah. And the seats rise up above the other, like grandstand, only in a semicircle up the sides of the hills, which completely surround them and rise above the highest seat like a rampart, completely around the seats, with tall pine trees growing on top. And there is no roof but the blue sky, and the whole thing is very wonderful and beautiful besides being world famous. Wow. <laughs> we climbed the hill behind the Greek theater and ate our lunch with Oakland, Berkeley, and the blue bay of the city and San Francisco spread out at our feet with still more hills or mountains rising at our backs and a blue blue sky above us and this was beautiful berkeley the city of homes and after lunch we wandered among the paths of the university grounds just and so to the car line which we took to oakland and so home across the bay from another pier and on another steamer from berkeley to oakland you know is following around the shore of the bay although we were out of sight of it because of the houses there is no space between the two they really are one city and it's impossible to tell where one ends and the other begins so different than now it is wonderful to cross the bay at night out 
at the front of the boat near the water, and I would never get tired of seeing the lights of San Francisco as the boat comes in. The ferry tower is very tall and all a mass of electric lights, and across it there are the words in electric lights, San Francisco invites the Panama Pacific Exposition 1915. And then there are other electric lights and signs, and I am getting so I can find my way around even uh, a little and even cross Market Street among the jitneys without being frightened. Uh, she would be frightened now if she crossed Market oh, Street. Oh, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> um, I love a ride on the streetcars at night and to go to the ferry station. So there was this ferry that used to exist, or not a ferry, there was a, a, a line, basically the, the, 28, the 38 Geary. So you got to see this picture. This is like the picture of the original 38 Geary that they're on, and it's down by the... And they were taking it all the way down. I can't believe how much money and, and what they did and how they spent to make this exposition. And it was so just vast. It was kind of like the new San Francisco. I mean, because think about it. They had to rebuild everything after the great earthquake. Right. And so this was their time to show off everything and rebuild. Right. They're like, look, we're not dead. It's like the new chapter of a new, of a city. Right. And they did it. And, and, and it's not even that far after. I mean, the 1906. That's that's to, nine years. I must have seen it not in this book. I saw it somewhere else. This great picture of a trolley and um, down at the, the Geary Street Pier. But I mean, I think these are the same cable cars that they that's the that's same, same cable car, right? Same one, like yeah. are the cable cars we have there. They're the original cable cars. I mean, we're, and this is the other thing I love about San Francisco. And they they've been they've been tra- they've been traipsing them out. Um, I don't know if you've I don't know if you've gone down market and you they've been bringing more old timey trains I love that. out I love because that, of the yeah. tourists and they're packed because it's such a cool it's thing. It's a cool thing, and I I love that. I mean, I will say this about SF, you know. I love the fact that they still use the streetcars and what have you yeah. like that. And you know, a lot of cities they they took those all away. Like we the, bought them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have a bunch of them and now. I think it's such a great way, like just to go back and forth. And I feel like sometimes people take advantage of it. You know, the fact that this is a piece of history that at least the city still has you know there's nothing wrong with keeping a piece of history especially like a locomotive like that it's so cool and i whenever i take the i take out small boys you know because i'm friends with them uh and that sounds so weird i (laughs) I nanny small children and i love to take them on the muni and i tell them every time we're gonna take the old timey car the old timey car because i get excited about this stuff like i do too I mean, I could be riding. I took the cable car a couple times yesterday because my Lifeline Pass allows me to do it for free. So nice. all of the, um, all of the, uh, tr- uh, what are they called? Tourists have to pay seven dollars one way, and I just jump on and off whenever I want because I actually live here. Um, but I imagine like I could be riding a streetcar that, or Ingalls Wilder Road that she went around, you know, in that neighborhood or. And I think about that when I'm with the kids on, like, the Birmingham, Alabama one. I'm like, could, who was sitting on this? Could could Martin Luther King, at one time, could he have been inside this vehicle? Possibly. Maybe. You know, just to think about, like, all the people that have lived in this enormous city. And I love, so this this picture right here, that's the Ellis Building that's that still a, yeah. exists. And, and so... And I look at that and I'm like, aha, that's the one, it's a 16-story building and it, it survived the 1906 earthquake. And it's one of the only buildings that survived the earthquake. And I just think that's 
cool. I, I, <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, I think I love it when you have cities that still appreciate their history and still mm-hmm. keep things intact. You know, because it makes you, it, it. I hate when people just smash everything up and make everything new. There's nothing authentic all the time about something new. You know, having like the streetcars or old buildings or. I've always been a fan of older homes myself. The home that I grew up in was built in the 1890s. Oh, wow. Cool. So, you know, I've always been fond of older things because it, it gives a fondness and appreciation to what happened here, what kind of history, who was here. Right. It, 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 it's that curiosity. Absolutely. That imagination, you know. And so I, I wish I could ride the streetcar more often. Hell. I Well, I take it. It's actually it more all. comfortable. I, I love I love the doors and the way they blah blah blah. Like my favorite ones are the the cars from Milan, because their running board goes in and out. The step basically when it opens and closes, it comes out on its own. It's like mechanized, <laughs> and it was it's like a 1912 or something streetcar, and it and and it just looks to Italian futurism because at that time in Italy. There's this movement called Italian Futurism, and it was before Mussolini, and it was about the streamlining. And their poetry even had this. They were they were moving for. It was the design function. It's like when you look at a Vespa, and it's like got that sleek. That was like this Italian Futurism. It was like right. bullet trains, you know. Right. And everything is sleek and smooth and steel, and you know, like a big cock. But it was, it was <laughs> a Italian, bullet. It's a bullet. It was Italian Futurism, and, and it, it predated Mussolini or whatever. But I'm interested when I see them. Those cars going by and I'm like oh I love that and it's that same fascination with Laura Ingalls Wilder that it's this old timey thing that that it was better than it was purer than or it was something this idealized past like I would love to have you know walked in San Francisco where there aren't just street cars but there's brand new cars in 1915 and there's still horses you know like when there were horses on the street, too. I wouldn't have been allowed to, so I have a different point of oh, view. Oh, right. No, no, no. That makes sense. <laughs> I have a well, different point of view. I think, though, San Francisco was different. I think that nah. San Francisco... Nah. There was... Nah. But there weren't... There wasn't, like... Uh, we didn't yeah. ever, Did we ever have slavery yeah. in California? I mean, I know that we enslaved the Chinese too. people. Yeah. And we made them build the railroads. Yeah, every, every place was racist. Well, <laughs> definitely racist. You know. But... I just, that form of nostalgia never intrigues me. Right. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, even from some of her readings, how she always said something derogatory about people of color. Right. You know, uh, I'm not, yeah. I'll tell you what she says about the, let's see if I can find the, um, that's that's the Australia. She talks about the Aborigines. Yeah, she talks about, I think it's, it's the Maori people, I think, that she's talking about when she says, first we went to this um, do, 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 pioneer mother which still exists there that that uh, that piece of art that's in the um, palace of fine arts that it's um, the pioneer mothers want a life-size group on a pedestal so one looks up at it a woman in a sunbonnet of course pushed back to show her face with her sleeves pushed up guiding a boy and a girl before her and sheltering and protecting them with her arms and pointing the way westward is wonderful and so true in detail. The shoe exposed is large and heavy, and I'd swear it'd been half sold. Anyways, because she, she, you know, she was one of those people who came across. Oh, and that's on that Vallejo Park that's beneath her house. There is um, the dedication to the park is of the woman who was the first child to be brought over in a wagon train, and it, oh, wow. in San Francisco, and it's commemorated to her. 
there, I gotta think that there were black people in the wagon trains too. You say no? Oh, I'm not. No, I'm not saying that they they weren't. I'm sure they had a special section. A special section of the wagon train. Yeah, because it wasn't all integrated. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's I I. Are, but the reason why I mean, don't get me wrong. This is why I love history. Yeah. Because yeah. I I do appreciate and I do like to hear and learn how life was and how much we have evolved as people but also devolved as well when especially when we were talking about you know food and having to do your own and having to make your own pie make your own butter the the whole appreciation of hard work and i'm not talking about hard work when it comes to like getting an education and getting a good job that's the whole thing about when people say hard work now it's not a it's all about focused on a financial factor of achievement rather than hard work of making dinner or hard work of having to grow my vegetables. That's something that was everyday. That was everyday life for people. And I think we definitely have gotten so lazy and taken for granted what a definition of what hard work can be rather than it be about making money. Right. Well, now here, and she's really excited about money. This is what she says here. (laughs) And, oh, I saw the carnation milk cows being milked with a milking machine, and it milked them clean, and the cows did not object in the least. The man in charge took your address, and if you get any literature, to be sure and save it, for this machine is certainly a success, and I can tell you about it when I come. I mean, she was really amazed by the mechanization of what was happening farming-wise, because that's a lot of the stuff that she looked at. I want to find this line that she says about about the people that she, I think she uses the term ugly, which is weird. Um, she talks about Mission Dolores. She goes to the mission in the suburb of the city, blah, blah, blah. And I just... She she also she really didn't like the Indians because yeah we were the, savages yeah because on the on the plains or whatever and she just, yeah because she, she took didn't. her people took her land so yeah they did I mean yeah. the government took all the Indian land and then made people pay you know sixteen dollars for it right. and then you expect and then they get mad like and have all this bias against uh, the about the Native Americans. And it's crazy because... It doesn't make any sense. It, do, it doesn't... That's another reason why I would not want to go back to that time, because I think I probably would have been lynched or burned. Well, because you didn't get to... Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Oh, the exposition. We yes. We saw... Yesterday, I spent the afternoon at the exposition. This is September 29th, 1915. Uh, Rose went out to see an engineer at the Southern Pacific exhibit to get some facts about her railroad story. As Gillette had the day off, we both went along and wandered around while she was talking to him. We saw the kangaroos and the wallabies at the Australian exhibit. One kangaroo was taking his afternoon nap in a bed he had scooped out in the sand, and the sun was shining brightly and very hot in his bed in the center of the wire yard, and he lay flat on his back with his legs sticking straight up and slept. And a lady kangaroo was making herself a bed in the sand, and another was eating mud, and a wallaby was hopping around, and it looked like a kangaroo's, only smaller, and its fur was gray instead of yellowish-brown. And the kangaroos look just like the pictures of them, only more so. And their front paws are so much smaller and out of proportion to their hind parts that they look ugly and seem very awkward as they hop around. 
The Australian exhibit was mostly woolen minerals, and the New Zealand building was near, and their exhibit was wood and woolen goods and moving pictures showing harvesting scenes, fishing scenes, surf baiting. She explains surfing later on. But they called it surf baiting, I guess. And I think it's amazing because I didn't know that they did surfing in 1950. Loading of ships with oysters, hemp, wool, and cheeses for export. There was also a stock show showing their cattle and horses. In pictures, I mean. And they were fine. Do you remember when we talked about going to New Zealand? I liked the pictures of the country very much. Oh, no, so she just calls the... the um, she doesn't call the people ugly. She just calls the kangaroos ugly. So I remembered it. Funny. Um... We went through the France and Belgium building, but our time is limited. Rose and I are going through them again, and I will write about them then. They are wonderful. We met Rose in the Hawaiian Gardens in the Horticultural Building. This is, sounds so amazing. They are a delightful combination of flowers and shrubs in a large pavilion where Hawaiian coffee and pineapple juice and salad and other combinations of pineapple are served at little tables. And there is a fountain in the center and water vines and shrubs and flowers around the fountain's rim. And the fountain and a little space are enclosed with golden ropes, and there are marble pedestals inside with canaries in cages on them. And one side is a balcony where Hawaiian band plays and sings their native songs, which are lovely. And the canaries have heard the music so long at that certain places they take up the tune and sing an accompaniment. It's beautiful. And the waiters are Hawaiian men and girls, and it's a delightful place to sit and rest, listen to the music, and sip either coffee or delicious pineapple juice. And the gardens are all kinds of strange plants and flowers and goldfishes and rock tanks. And there are immense fern trees, ferns with stems as large as the trunks of trees growing as high, date palms and other curious things. So this at this fair, so then later I looked up all these pictures and there's tons of them of the destruction pictures of the fair. The only thing we saved was the Palace of Fine Art and everything else that we built, the Temple of Jewels, they had all of these things and this, what, the garden that she just described? They just gone. tore it all down. I'm like, why would they spend all this money and build all of these expositions and not leave them? When did they tear it all down? Like, after the fair. Really? So the fair went, she was there in, I guess, she was there in September and it went all the way through because it ended in November and then this... The article happened November 20th, and so it ended, like, the 19th or whatever it ended. And everything just... And they tore everything down. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is crazy to me, that because... That is actually really crazy. Because the Palace of Fine Arts, so all we have left is the Palace of Fine Arts. But the rest of it, I mean... Well, the, the Embarcadero... Was that 1915 as well? The, well, the clock? But that, that that was the clock already existed. But So here's the area. Like, look how big it was. And they just... The marina. They just tore... Yeah, basically it was the marina. Yeah. So, like, maybe this is what... When they scooped it all together and made it... Just imagine if that was still there. That would be great. It'd be so cool. And I, I saw... I mean, look how that opens up to the sea. That's all gone. And... I looked at the the, um, the planning for it. You can look old-timey pictures, you know, and there's things <laughs> on the internet. And it was an enormous swath of land that they just, that they had for this purpose. And then they said, gone. ah, gone. Which makes no sense to me. Makes no sense to me. Why do we that's, build things and then just destroy them? That, that's a waste. And, you know, the sad thing is we still continue to do that. 
You still continue to, oh man, that was actually really pretty. Like, just, was there like, like a merry-go-round and stuff? Oh, there was, they had a whole area called The Zone that was all fun and games and Devota Small. Oh. And in the begin, she, beginning, she even says like, it would be impossible to see everything because they added it up. And if you added up all of the nickel, dime, and quarter things that you had to pay to see, or like buildings to go in or whatever, uh, it would have been $500 a person. There were so many things going on, so many quarter nickel dime now and the other cool thing um in san francisco is the uh at the end of the pier i take kids there all the time is the um musée de mécanique and uh things cost a quarter or two quarters i mean i I guess they used to cost a nickel or a penny or something but you can get just tons of change and they have all of these old tiny you know like little things that are built that you put money in and they dance around or like these big it's really if if you it's a great place to take a date because it's weird you just take five dollars put it in the in the change machine and they have all kinds of weird things like you can pay a quarter and look in through a thing and like turn it and like watch an old movie or they have ones that are like yeah it's a Nickelodeon like that kind of kind of thing and it's really cool they have you know the weird old like fortune teller people they have a lady this one thing that's like mama Bess, and she just laughs and it like makes people laugh and it's been making people laugh since the you know 1915 or whatever but there are these one of them there's a bunch of them where actually they're built out of matchsticks like little towns and then they move around Uh, there's a bunch of player pianos anyways it's this huge thing down on the docks at Fisherman's Wharf it's free to go in but then they have all of the, you can pay a quarter. You could just walk around and see all the other people do things with quarters. So it, it really is, I mean, I take children there all the time. And you just hand them a bunch of quarters and go, hey, let's do it. That sounds like fun. It's really and fun. And why have I not done this? It's it. I sometimes play tourist in San Francisco. I mean, yesterday I played tourist. I was like, I'm going to go check out what she used to do. And I mean... I just I have such I have such nostalgia for this time period. Really? Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Even oh, the other funny thing she hates Chinese food. She talks about <laughs> she's like, and I didn't like it. She didn't like the Chinese food because they're right above they're right above Chinatown, Chinatown, the Russian Hill. She did not. She does not care for it. And I just thought that was so funny. Uh, but being as the way that she grew up, it it absolutely makes sense. Um, Uh, When Laura was here, she looked beneath the surface to wonder if the city were truly prosperous. It was. Here and there, the the bones of the old city, the city that was, exposed by the great leveler, the 06 Quaken Fire, still showed through. And there were occasional vacant lots enclosed by rusting wrought iron fences. In some, there were marble steps leading into thin air. Inez Irwin described them as... Uh, a little like meeting a ghost in a crowded street. And it may have well been these vestiges of earlier hardship that gave Laura pause. For Quaker no, San Francisco was actually the wealthiest city on the west, west coast and fifth wealthiest in the nation. The silver mines of the Comstock Lode made that happy and lo- happen, and Laura's speculation could also have been prompted by the simple austerities of World War I. This war threatened the exposition itself until daring men went to Europe and brought back the art treasures to be shown. Their effort was worth it. Exposition goers loved the paintings and sculptures. Um, 
Yeah, so, because they, they had to go and get, like, the France building, she talks about it later, it just had all of this great art just that they brought over. And I'm thinking, like, geez, they should have kept it over here. Do they keep it over here for safekeeping? Like, um, but yeah, this is, I mean, uh, Rose. Yeah, and this is interesting about Rose, when she's, her mom was there, she was actually interviewing Henry Ford. Oh, really? For like, she was writing something for the newspaper, and she talks about how she, she had to leave. So she was, Rose uh, Wilder Lane, which is Laura Ingle Wilder, her daughter, actually was pretty frickin' famous. In 1915, when her mom was staying with her, she was writing, she was doing really well, she had syndicated, she had a, her column got syndicated to a bunch of newspapers all around the United States, and she was interviewing all of these famous people and being taken to these parties and all these things, and her mom describes it, and her mother was so proud of, like, that her daughter was... Her husband, like, she's very disparaging about Gillette not having work. Um, but he doesn't have work, and she's the one working, and she's paying for all of these things. And uh, her work is really well-received. And at the time, Laura Ingalls was 48 when she went to uh, San Francisco in 1915. And so she started writing her books, like, after that. So I think that it was her daughter's, like, she was like, I can do this, too. Because she was writing with her daughter, and she talks about we were sitting together and working out stories and, and doing this. And I think it was like like a backward influence. Like she influenced her daughter so much to. The daughter influenced And the daughter her. influenced her right back. And then she started writing, you know, her, her autobiographical novels because they. She even says, oh, I told Rose the story about, uh, you know, I just, I love all this stuff in this. Now, how old uh, was Laura Ingalls Wilder when she died? Ninety. She lived till she was ninety. So that's the other thing that's interesting. Is she came here in her midlife? She was forty-eight, about halfway through her ninety-year life, and she's like describing San Francisco. And this is before she wrote her her memoirs that became you know, these famous fictionalized, her fictionalized memoirs. And so she went back home, and then like really started writing, like, wow. and then put. So it's it's like this was kind of the, the start. I mean, I'm sure she was always writing letters. Um, but I, I think that it was so... Um, As readers of the Little House books know, Laura was a pioneer girl who traveled through the Midwest during her growing up years. She married Almanzo in 1855, and they homesteaded near Dismet, Dakota Territory. Storms, fire, plagues of locusts, and drought finally forced them to seek a new start in Mansfield, Missouri. So that was what happened um, in the first four years. It's like their house burns down. There's locusts. They can't get. They can't get ahead of the bank. It's just. It's just rough. Um, The the lane of the Big Apple, a big red apple, as promoters called it. Life on the new farm was a hard scrabble. During the early years, the land couldn't support the small family, so Almanzo took a job selling kerosene for the Waters Pierce Oil Company. Laura managed customer billing and accounts payable to free Almanzo to do whatever work was necessary at the farm. Eventually, the farm began to prosper and their lives became increasingly happy. Their only child, Rose, recalls the scene later. At night, I took a book home from school and after supper, Papa would pop a big pan of popcorn, and Mama Bess, Laura, whose middle name was Elizabeth, 
was called that within her family to avoid confusion with Almanzo's sisters, Laura, and read aloud while he and I ate it. And she sat beside the table with a lamp on it, and her hair was combed back smoothly and braided in a heavy braid, and the lamplight glistened on it. And Papa sat at the other side of the table, the pan of popcorn between his knees, and ate slowly and methodically, kernel by kernel. He liked to look at the shape of each one, and he often remarked that no two were alike, and yet they were all pretty. And this was the cozy, comfortable hour for all of us. And we had had supper, and the room was warm, and we were alone together, and the horses fed and sleeping in the barn. Nothing to worry till tomorrow, and Mama Best was reading, and that was the best of all. Um, I don't know, I just... I'm like, oh, I wanted to live with these people. Uh, Rose's success in later life, she was world-famous author before her mother was known outside the Ozarks, was no, in no small part to testimony to the character and intelligence of her parents. She went to work first as a telegrapher for Western Union and then as one of the first real estate women in San Francisco, oh. saleswomen in California, and in 1914 was a feature writer for the San Francisco Bulletin under the tutelage of the great American editor, Fremont Older. I don't know who that is. Uh, by this time, she was married, brimful of early success, and eager to share joys with her mother. And she had previously urged her mother to come west to San Francisco, but the plans had not materialized. Now in 1915, the Great World's Fair called the Pan Pacific International Exposition was scheduled to open in San Francisco to celebrate the completion of the magnificent canal through Panama. And this was a splendid spectacle to show the world that California truly had come into its own in every way. Mm. Um, and so they so they brought her out and then, and then she brought, you know, all this information back to Missouri and was like, it is pretty amazing out there. They got milking machines. There was even, um, when she talks to Ford, and he tells her to tell Almanzo to tell dad, or she writes him a letter, the, the daughter, and she says, I met Ford, I met this guy, and he has this new machine called a tractor. And it's only $250, and it can do 11 hours of work, and you don't have to feed it hay. And it's, it's just funny, because I'm like, that's right, not everybody had cars. No, the tractors are, Wow. And Oof. the other thing that's cool is that Muni just had its 100-year anniversary, which was 1915. Oh, so that's the start. Oh, so it came out the same year as the World's Fair. Probably for the World's that's Fair. That's probably, so, yeah. To be like, look probably at made what, debut. So it was, you know, the Muni was all fresh and sparkling. They've got, you can take streetcars everywhere. There's, you know, new, like it's built. Muni exists. Um, it was an important time in San Francisco. A great place to go and find opium dens. Well, and that's funny because she even mentions the Shanghai thing, and she she talks really? about it in the book, where um, sailors will come off from port, and um, they have the place, they have the neighborhood for them to. Uh, they had the whorehouses and had a bunch of bars and very fun, and they said that they would have if they didn't spend their all of their money before 2 or 3 a.m. that people would go out with uh, bats and they would hit them over the head and relieve them of the money that they chose not to spend. So the best thing to do was to get off the ship and spend all your money because you don't want to have any left over because you're going to get... You're robbed. Yeah, your money's staying in San Francisco either way, sailor, okay? <laughs> but you can either do it the fun way and just have a headache in the morning or you can do it the not fun way and you can get hit over the head, have a headache in the morning and still not have the money. See, that's the kind of stuff that old timey stuff I always like to get interested in. Well, now here's the other fun place to go in San Francisco. If you go to North Beach, there's the very one of the very first bars, or it's still one that's still standing, and it's the saloon. It's on, and it's great because 
you'll see if you go into the bar, um, they have the old piss trough, and you can see it has a little gullet, gulf, or whatever, underneath the bar, and it goes out underneath the sidewalk and goes out into the street. And it was so that the men could just relieve themselves at the bar and you just pee into the pee trough at your own feet and it would drip out into the street because they were disgusting animals. But the thing is that, I I mean, I just think it's a great and bizarre idea. It's so funny. Like, I do like learning the history about this place It's because it's very fascinating, you know, because San Francisco, believe it or not, is still kind of like a young city in its own way. Absolutely, 1849. Um, I mean, it was right, and but it has so much history and debauchery that it's so. Especially, I'm not talking about stuff that happened. In the, I'm not even talking about like the 1960s. I would right. like to go back to like like the World's Fair and stuff like that, or sure. even before. Like, it's really fascinating of like how like during the Gold Rush, exactly. Oh yeah. You know how basically like all the brothels and there was like I believe there was a f- the first female madam. Oh, it's from cool. San Francisco. You know, Laura Ingalls Wilder didn't write about that, though. No, no. <laughs> well, she, I mean, no, she definitely doesn't talk about prostitution. No, she, I, yeah. she doesn't talk about the... She does talk about r- d- rougher neighborhoods. Um, There's but, no vulgarity. No, but there was... I just don't even think that... that I mean, she talks about the drinking, and it, and this, again, was pro-prohibition times. So um, well, People were really getting down. Well, and so the term Shanghai... Uh, comes from mm-hmm. uh, when you'd be drinking get, and they, they, yeah, they hit you over the head, and then they drop you through a trap door, and put you on a, a ship, ship. <laughs> and send you away, and you became a slave, basically. Yeah, you got Shanghai. You got Shanghai. I learned that recently too. That was like very interesting. The fact that that came from here. <laughs> well, and the the way that the marina was built, and a lot of the first saloons and stuff after the 1906 earthquake and the whatnot is the they flipped over all the boats they flipped over the boats upside down and they were making uh the the, that was the their structure so your first bar would be just you take the ship you got here it doesn't work anymore ships can't can't dock it don't have it and they'd flip it over make it into a bar and they'd make it into a bar and so that's one of the uh oldest uh, bars in san francisco is called the old ship and it's built on top of that, on top of the original bar, which was the original ship. Wow. And so, and that's how the marina ended up happening. They, they, they overturned all these boats and then they filled it in with dirt and the whatnot as the, as the, as the neighborhood grew. That's, and it's all landfill. That's all fascinating. There's also um, up in the sunset where it was mostly all the streetcars that they made into homes or what have oh, you. Uh-huh. Yeah, which was really fascinating that I found out which they just completely demolished. I don't know when they demolished those, but all the old streetcars became like people's houses on the beach. Right, right, like uh, like the first mobile homes yeah. that aren't moving anywhere. Right, right. But it was interesting how people, and I believe this was after the quake as well, how people would use these items and just, you got you got to use what you got. I have my, I've had my bus idea for years that... And now that they're changing over the buses, and I've been saying, you know, we just got a fleet of like 124 new muni buses. What are we doing with the old buses? Are we selling them to China? What are we doing? But my idea is gut the bus, stack them on top of each other, divide them in half, and you make them into apartments. That's you actually better. Put spiral staircases up the sides of them, stack them five on top of each other. 
Each half a bus could be a family could live there. It would give people, you could have mailing addresses, you could put a barbecue pavilion in the front, you could have a childcare there, you could have a, a, a group kitchen that's both indoor and outdoor with like barbecue pits and all the kinds of things. You have a nice bathroom facility. Uh, you can have family bathrooms, you know. The only downfall would be for earthquake protection. How would you... Well, they, they'd have to... The, the whole thing is you can't just stack the buses. You'd have to give it to some college kid and have them architecturally figure out. Figure out. You put a steel beam in the center. I don't know. You know, so Stilts. Stay out. Just up across the out. Three steel beams. Side, middle, <laughs> like, whatever. I don't know. And then with the... And then on the steel beams on the side, that's what you could build the staircases out of. But I'm thinking in the center... You've got your childcare facility, you have your group kitchen that you could be teaching classes out of, that you could have people get their continuing education in, in cooking for the group because you've got everybody there. You would be creating jobs because you'd have to staff the place. You'd want safety to be paramount. So you'd have to be, you know, making sure that, I mean, it would be a place where people could have a, a permanent address so they could get a job. There would be jobs that would be available on site if you, you know, went through like the internship thing and proved yourself over whatever time. And, you know, I don't have a problem with people doing drugs as long as they're doing it in sort of a safe environment. I'm like, don't, don't, don't do drugs in the common area. Don't, you know, just be good people. Don't shoot up in the park. Don't shoot up in the park. But I mean, that's the other thing is that if you give someone a place to live, maybe they won't shoot up because they don't have to sleep on the street and be incredibly uncomfortable. If, if I was sleeping in a doorway, I would be more apt to drink steel reserve for $1.75 a can. And I would be more apt to, you know, start a heroin habit so that I could, you know, survive on the street. I mean, right. How many buses are there? Do you know how many mini buses there are? Oh gosh. And their whole fleet, we could look it up, but they are just changing them over. The new buses are the really cool, snazzy ones. The 49 is a really new snazzy bus. Really? Oh, they're nice. Um, there, and there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of new ones. And it's cause the old ones, the problem with the old ones is that, um, they've got the stairs. And so if you have a baby cart, you can't, you have to either use the, 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 the handicapped ramp, which I always feel really guilty about. Or use about. your woman power. Use your woman power. But if you have, I have a double stroller. Sometimes I have to use. It's impossible. Oh. It's impossible to get it up on that on those old buses with the stairs, without engaging the ramp. But the new buses, you just pop it right on there. No big deal. Um, and they've they've figured out ways to like accommodate strollers, which. I know doesn't matter to a lot of people, but as a nanny that uses public transportation, I really appreciate the ease of what they're trying to do and how they're trying to help. And strollers and wheelchairs. Strollers and wheelchairs, yeah. Most definitely. You know, I I've, I think I've been on maybe a couple of the new ones that have just like the single seat oh, uh-huh, on the uh-huh. side, which Helpful. I don't mind that because, you know, those kind of buses get really packed. And so you need more. I mean, you know, you need more people to be able to fit. Right. You know, and, you know, I mean, I think that's cool. Like the fact of the matter that they are transitioning, but I, you do give thought to like what to do with, what do you do with the old, what do you do with the old garbage buses? I mean, now there's another lady in San Francisco who's amazing and you can see her parked out front of the library quite often. She takes buses. She has three now. She takes old buses and she converts them into showers. So each bus becomes two showers. 
um, with you walk in she gives you a clean towel there's an ante room for you to sort of change your clothes get naked then there's a shower room um, everything is super clean they provide you with shampoo blah 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 oh nice and then you go out you put your clothes back on and you leave and her you know um, cleaning up the city one shower at a time and it's amazing because people need access to cleanliness yeah there if, are some nasty mofos here. if you're it will if everyone I mean it's I mean, we live in the richest, one of the richest cities. Even in 1915, it was one of the richest Rich, cities. In the yeah, nation. top five. And it's one of the richest cities in the nation still. Still to this and day. And that we can't house, feed, and keep people nominally clean. What, what, what the fuck are we doing? I think some of them aren't mentally <laughs> there to clean themselves. Sure, but so that's... But the, also, it's an access issue. If you don't have the wherewithal and you also don't have the access, now you are not going to go out of your way to seek out anything. Oh. Right? But if at least if the access is there now I mean if I if I was a questionably housed person and I was doing a lot of heroin and I didn't give a <laughs> shit and if I smelled a little bit like shit and I see this bus I'd be like hell yeah I'm gonna take a shower it's gonna feel great yeah I'm gonna get the scum off <laughs> right I mean to and providing toothbrushes prostitutes gotta keep it clean gotta keep it clean to go to work gotta keep it all clean i I didn't know that there was like a bus that did provide those showers that's pretty nifty yeah i just wish more people would take advantage of it right because you don't have to be poor to be a nasty mofo in this town because i've seen some i've seen some hipsters that are pretty ripe yeah i've seen some people with money that like why are you trying to look that way right it's just like just go take a bath right (laughs) or go go in the bay don't don't, no no more white people with dreadlocks can we put a moratorium (laughs) can we do it I was hoping that we you would go it? there. Absolutely. If we could not, if we could just let that cultural appropriation thing go, it's not, you're not paying homage. Okay. You're not, you're not helping. Yeah. It, you, you're tainting, you're tainting what dreadlocks is about. I yeah. wonder how Laura Ingalls Wilder would think if she was to come Oh my gosh. Here. She would say, brush your hair. I mean, that's the whole thing. <laughs> they talk about her mother, Carolyn, had this long, beautiful, shining, flowing hair. And it, this was a thing in the 1800s, you know. Hair was you, important. You didn't, your hair was, it was a religious thing. Your hair is your crown and glory. A lot of people think that way. I mean, in the Hindu religion, you have to shave, you grow it out for a long time, then you shave it off. The Sikhs believe that you never cut it. There's a lot right. of stuff with hair. Women and shouldn't have short hair. Religion and, right. right. And women with short hair and blah, blah, blah. But uh, she, Carolyn, uh, her mother, would brush the hair um, like a hundred strokes, you know, every night, hundred strokes, and because he was, you know, also you weren't showering as much, so you had to get the oils, you had to move them down. But um, Laura talks a lot about hair in her books and what that meant and growing it out and having it be long and braided and putting it up and having it in two separate braids, and then when you grow up, becoming a woman and wearing your hair differently and. Um, that when she was on that she really was a wild child and she loved to run around the prairie and everything and that her mother would always say like oh you look like a wild Indian with your hair that's crazy heathen heathen but uh, there was definitely a lot of hair brushing she would not support dreadlock I can say that 100% Laura Ingalls Wilder would never support white people I, I, I also going back to the cleaning the you know the whole thing about like taking a bath the thing is when you lived in, on the farm or where have you not everyone you not everyone could afford to take baths every day so right. you had to get creative sure. about stuff like that which that's so funny that just putting that those two things together about you know the whole shower thing the bus sh- shower thing that you're just mentioning and you know how people are still funky you know they don't 
people don't know how to take care of themselves. Well, and I don't know how much we are training our. Ch- I mean, okay, this comes down to manners, etiquette, a lot of it, and like knowing who they are in a group full of people and and augmenting their own behavior in order to have manners. I feel like a lot of this has fallen to the wayside. People chew with their mouth open. No. People talk with their food in their mouth. I was trained as a child that when you have food in your mouth, you either cover your mouth with your hand or you wait and say, excuse me, I'm still chewing Mm -hmm. because it's rude to talk with food in your mouth. Yes. Because you could spit food on someone. There's very practical decisions and reasons why these things uh, work out. But I feel like the manners of children, I don't feel like there are any manners. I feel like someone talking loudly on their cell phone on the bus, that is a manners issue. That is a very big, yeah. And I, this is where I agree with the fact with the whole manners of that old timey kind of thing of saying, please, thank you. Don't you with your mouth full. I do believe in that theory of like, you know, it should be old timey. Unfortunately should be seen and not heard. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate the fact that it sounds like it's old timey, but it's right. true because people don't have proper etiquette. Everybody, I mean, if we could teach etiquette about the cell phone, when I'm on a bus, and somebody calls me. Now, my phone doesn't work anymore. I, I can't, I have to put it on a speakerphone in order for me to hear it because it's, because I, I use things until they break because I'm very old timey. But, um, <laughs> that's the word of the day, by the way. Old timey. Old timey. Ding. <laughs> but I have to, it has to be on speakerphone. So if I need to answer a call, I'll say, I'm sorry, I'm on the bus. Can I call you back in a little bit? Because I don't want everyone on the bus to hear my entire Convers- hear the conversation. I've been on a bus where a person has been on speakerphone <laughs> and is talking to another person. Do they? The other person did not know they were on speakerphone until halfway through the conversation. They said, "Am I on speakerphone?" <laughs> and he says, "Yeah, I'm on the bus." And she was like, "Take me on the speakerphone." What are you doing? Exactly. What do you, you, Why would you do that? That's kind of that's rude to the other person on the other line. Absolutely. And we're just even talking. This is modern etiquette. This is modern. This etiquette. is modern etiquette. Sure. But I mean, don't. And now it's just like now your volume of like how Ugh. you're talking. It's just like it's disturbing everyone else. Absolutely. You know. And I really. And another thing, when people play their music. Oh God. That. That happens a lot here. Like mm-hmm. in where I'm from, they would tell you to turn that shit off. I've heard bus drivers say, "Turn it off back there. Turn it down." Yeah, because they're like, "It's distracting, and I can't deal with it." It is driving. distracting. It's that's what headphones for. <laughs> that's what they came out with back in the day, exactly. so you could avoid. But I mean, the thing is, it's, it looks like I do believe in going back to that proper. Et- it doesn't have to be proper, just etiquette. 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 Like, definitely at dinner. Miss manners. <sighs> yes, do not chew with your mouth full. It's, I mean, it's one of the basic things, but you'd be surprised. Look, a- you work in the restaurant industry. Oh, Look around and see people doing it. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's, it's in, you know, even like I went to a table yesterday, and I'm like, hi, hello, how are you? He's on the phone like this. And I'm like, let's try this skin. Hello, how are you? But he was, he was an older gentleman, too. So... I think it also has to do with people at a certain class feel like they don't need to interact, interact. Yeah. Or, and it's also the fact of like, maybe they were raised that way or a cultural thing. Well, and if it is a cultural thing, then 
I lament the loss of manners in our culture and what has happened to Americans that has made us so lazy that we don't even monitor our interactions with one another. Oh, totally. We are so lazy with the way, which gets us back to Laura Ingalls Wilder, they were not lazy. They could not be lazy in those times because if you were lazy, you wouldn't eat. You would die. Right. Exactly. You would starve your ass you to death. You would starve your ass to death. And now we're just this like... We don't even want to talk. No. Yeah. That's how lazy... We text. And... I feel like people don't read anymore. I feel like I feel like we, we're losing our we're losing history because no one's studying history. There, there you go. That there you go. Even, there you go. We're losing parts of of how, how we collectively remember and decide to grow, evolve as people. We're letting that go because we're so lazy. Yeah, and you know I've I've been guilty. I feel like I've gotten lazy, especially with my reading and. Thank God I just started picking up a book again. Um, I started reading The real, uh, the New Jim Crow. Oh, my goodness. And the thing is, it's just like, because I feel like I've gotten lazy. Like, why am I not reading a book? Like, why don't I read as much as I used to and stretch my mind out? Why do I have to always watch something visual? Right. You know, ooh, big, loud, pretty colors. Because why Anthony I- Bourdain is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I have a crush on. I do too. I can't stop watching. They told me the new the news the news episodes came out of. It's uh, on Netflix. Um, um, yeah, and it's uh, parts unknown, and he does one in the Bay Area. He does one. He I specifically seen that one yet. says Bay Area because it's a lot of San Francisco, but he goes to other places. But he's like, I don't know. Why I say I say Bay Area because I've already been to San Francisco a lot. <laughs> he's like, I love this place. I love this place. So, I like him. I like him too, and I feel like he always d- digs up you know, treasures and gems and, and is, is sort of teaching history. But through, I believe what he believes, which also goes back to the Laura Ingalls Wilder. Travel. But so much of our culture is food. Food is culture. Oh, totally. And food is politics. Yes. And I mean, even in the Laura Ingalls Wilder days, food was politics. You had to grow it. You had to make it. You That's what made you self-sufficient. That's what made you live. That's what made you prosperous was the growing of food. And sometimes the type of food that you would eat. Right. You know, I'm sure they weren't eating roast beef constantly all the time. No, only that- once a year, really. I mean, unless you put it away. They talk about when they butcher a hog. Right. Uh, but you don't usually butcher a cow because they're worth to you. They're worth so much more than the, just the meat and the flesh. Right. And then when they were dealing with men cows, oxen, they were using them to pull, to pull the wagons. So they were like, they were their workhorses, but they were oxen. You know. So. Right. And you know the thing is, it's just like food is very, very, very important to me. That's why I think it's very important to cook. Right. That's why I feel it's very important to stretch your palate out and try new things. And I think us as Americans, and it's really weird, some people in some parts of the country can't open their mind to experiences of like rather just hamburgers and fries. And I, I'd pizza. like to open my experience to some Waffle House. I've never <laughs> the, been to a Waffle House. You've never been to a Waffle House? No, but I feel like... My, Go my, to a Waffle House. I, my friend, uh, uh, he's a comedian, Elvis Muich, he did a Waffle House tour. Oh, nice. And he took uh, a microphone and a box, you know, a, a box of... Uh, you know, a box, like a little Fender amp thing. And he'd just go to a Waffle House and be like, hey, I'm going to start doing comedy. Is that okay? And That's awesome. It. Especially, and I know what part of the country he was in, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And the thing is, it's just like, you know, when you travel to different places, especially here in America, you always, like, when I did the cross-country thing from Chicago to here, I was really excited more about 
what diners and places I could go to. Sure. You know what I found very disappointing? Those places don't really exist anymore. Oh boy. All I got was a bunch of like Denny's and, oh. and, and fast food. And I, I hated it because I thought the whole experience was not even just about looking and, and checking out different states and how people are and live in this part of the country. But the mom and pop diner experience was something also that you would get from traveling sure. cross country. And I didn't get that. And that, that really sucked. But when you go down to parts of the South, I noticed when I remember driving from St. Louis to uh, Orlando, we hit we hit some of like mom and pop places that you would think it was a complete shithole, but they had really good food. Or you right. see pickled eggs, and you see just like things that you don't see all the time. So it's a whole different culture and a whole other experience. But that's why I feel like food and travel is like one of those very very important things. Absolutely. You know. Well, and I mean it's the same thing that Laura Laura said in her, the breads from around the world. You know you're. There's so every single culture has their own bread that's different mm-hmm. and specific to what who they are, what they do. You know, the Ethiopians have the injera bread and the Indians you know, have naan. Right. And you've got the pita in some places. And then in, and then in the Middle East you've got a bunch of different breads. And some of them are more like tortillas and some of them right. use, you know, different leavenings and all I and I Lavash. love it. Oh Lava- yeah, sure. You got your leavened and your unleavened and your I just don't like wonder bread. And, I don't like wonder bread. No, I don't. <laughs> well, but here sliced white bread can be delicious if you like a brioche, even though that's kinda heavy, but if you made your own like real loaf of white bread i mean i'm sure it would be fantastic i, I like i do have the appreciation for sourdough yeah i, 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 I really love sourdough I love breads i mean i'm no and even this is this gets deep but some people say that the cultivation of grains and the making of bread is is the downfall of man really that's when we well that's when we started changing our environment and that's when we started modifying our environment and farming specifically through like trying to get enough grains this tiny grain together trying to get enough of them to grind them and make this other product it's it's instead of eating a piece of fruit which nature makes and it falls on your head and you eat it and it's good it's taking that nature and it's making it does it's the beginning of processing foods and some people would say that the processing anything is terrible um but we're i mean it's the same thing like you get a piece of meat you put it over the fire you denature the protein it's better you know right we're gonna eat raw things your whole life no that's just that's just evolution right that's just what evolution and isn't that something to do with um what's that new whole diet that people paleo yeah paleo people are crazy yeah it's all uh it's all meats and you can't eat it's just it's no process but saying no sugar is 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 not a terrible thing way to live it's actually unhealthy your body needs some kind of sugar well but you get sugar from things like fruit fruit right right. that's you the problem what we do with the fruit is we turn it into juice so it's just pure sugar and then that's when you have issues with your liver because when you concentrate yeah when you fucking hit your liver hard with sugar bam and then it's like uh uh it's over it over it over processes and and we have so much sugar in our diet like even in the breads yeah well yeah the processed refined flour and and refined sugar and if we were eating like a mango not terrible no because you have the fiber in the mango that counteracts the sugars and the, the the whole your body processes the whole plant but we like it quick and dirty you know what i yeah. mean like 
we're <laughs> Or sometimes if it's quick or dirty, that's all we can afford as well, which is... And then now that's the other thing is you've got calories for money and how... When you buy a piece of fruit, you know, if you spend a dollar on a mango and you're only going to get 100 calories out of it, whereas if you spend a dollar on a candy bar, you're going to get 240 to 360 calories out of it. Ugh. And... You know, you say, oh, that's better because I don't have any money and I need to eat and I need to survive. But then your body's like, oh, I mean, and I, I'm sure if I looked at my liver processes and the amount of alcohol. So I'm double taxing it with, with A, more refined sugar because we all eat too much sugar and then uh, B, with the alcohol. But I also eat a lot less sugar. I like dried fruit, but I still feel the same way. I feel like, oh, now I'm taking the, the water out of it, which is another good part. I should just eat an apricot. But that's the thing is I would eat one apricot, two apricots, or I'll eat like seven dried apricots. <laughs> when I forget that that dried apricot is the same as, as a whole apricot, right. but it's not as filling because it doesn't have the water weight, and then I'm consuming more calories. But I probably eat, sh- I shouldn't worry about eating apricot calories, right? I mean, come <laughs> on. There are, yeah, there are a lot of worse things, too. Well, and I don't – and it's not that I'm worried about – I'm not worried about getting fat. I'm not worried about me personally with the obesity crisis in America. But I do see that with people around and how, I mean, it seems kind of obvious now, like you could track how much fast food people are eating and you could uh, see like the body types and sizes. It's, it's horrifying. Like we've said, we've talked about this many times before about how the fast food is, it's, it's so easy and accessible and it, it, I think they also target like a demographic of people that don't have enough money, you know. But don't know how to cook. Don't know how to. And that's the thing. You could save so much money if you knew how to cook. Right, right. That's the thing. Absolutely. I mean. But not. That's the thing, though. Ninety-nine cents. Okay, so you're talking about a dollar seven. And right now, this is the crazy thing. Okay, and and marketing affects me, and I see it in the world, and I'm trying to look at it with a critical eye. So I hate to say this, but I'm doing it for for critical analysis more than for helping. Burger King has 10 nuggets for $1.49. That's less Ew. than, that's that's 15 cents a nugget, okay? That's fit. How is that possible, okay? So with Cheap tax, meat. with tax, you're looking at like $1.64. Okay, let's see how many calories. It's probably 600 calories, right? So for 15 cents a piece, you're getting like super calories, you're going to be full because you're going to eat 10 of them. You're going to put the sauce on there, too, which is all sugar. Right. Right? And, and they have a thing that you can only you can only take two sauces. You can't have more than two sauces. Because <laughs> um, they don't want, you know, they don't want you giving away the sauce. I don't know. But sauce is all made of sugar. This is how, how many chickens does it take to make a chicken nugget? And, and if it is multi- a chicken, if it, well, I'm sure it's got to be made somehow. It's got to be. It can't be made of soy because they can't chicken, call it a chicken nugget. If it's, it's chicken made. pieces, like the beaks and everything else. That's well, what it it's, is. it comes from a chicken somehow. Okay, but that's the thing is that how many nuggets? Let's say let's let's look at the nugget, right? Okay, and it's supposed it's only 15 cents a piece. Let's say that it's let's say you can get 30 nuggets out of a chicken. Okay, <sighs> so 30 times 15. So we're saying that. This chicken itself, and all the processing costs less than two dollars a chicken. So you're taking the chicken, three dollars, three dollars a chicken, right? which is insane because when I buy a chicken at the store, it's like a dollar ninety nine, two ninety nine a pound. So we're talking three three dollars for the chicken, 
and then you have to process the chicken. So the, the gas that it costs to make the electricity, the whatever it costs to make the electricity to make the machines run to make the nuggets, the breading on the outside of the nuggets, the, the, the whatever chemicals are going into it. And you're telling me that it costs, that you're making a profit on 15 cents a nugget? How is that possible? Or, or you can use your EBT. Right, and you can use your hot food EBT. But how is the pro- it's impossible to turn a profit on a 15 cent. It's 15 cents for what? How many calories? Probably like 80 calories. Maybe 75 calories. Instead, there's 75 calories in a nugget. So 15 cents for 75 calories. That is a deal. That is, that is a calorie savior. I feel nauseous. Right. And, <laughs> but that's the thing that blows my mind is that we're providing affordable food that isn't food and nobody's we're not confused like there's a loss somewhere and who's subsidizing it is it that the is it that the hospital industry is paying the pharmaceutical industry is paying the corporations giving them subsidies so that they can put out a crappier product that makes people sick so that they can take money from them in the future is, where's the correlation going? Yeah, but where's, where's the money coming from? Right. 15 cent nuggets should not be possible in our economy and with our food. It should be not possible. It should be an impossibility. It, it, it's just, it's just, uh, it just doesn't seem right. Like anytime you have something that is that cheap, and I, I just feel like this is my conspiracy theory, like just churning away. Like there's something rotten in that meat. Yeah, something rotten in Denmark. Yeah, it's it, that's how I feel because it's just like there's no way. Here's how you make a chicken nugget. You take, I like to use thigh meat, okay? It's cheap. You scrape it off the bone, uh, ideally, because you, you know, it's, it's cheaper when you have the bone on. Then you stick that meat inside of a queasy squeeze, a Cuisinart. Okay. Yeah. And you zhum zhum it up, zhum 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 zhum, make it all fine like a paste. You add a little bit of cornstarch and the white of an egg. Zhum zhum zhum, salt, pepper, whatever you want. Once you put in your binding agents, your corn, I mean your um, cornstarch and your and your egg, white, which is going to bind it together. You want to make sure you don't zhum zhum it up too much because it starts to get a weird consistency. So then you take your and you spice it, flavor it however you want. And then I like to use panko crumbs because they stick really well to the meat goo. And I just take the chicken and I dip it in the panko crumbs and I, and I, you know, in little nugget shapes. And then you put them on the pan and you throw them in the oven. Now, if you want to make them like super crispy, spritz them with a little olive oil, just like, or some Pam, spray some Pam on there. And put them in the oven. That's how you make a chicken nugget. I just learned something. Out of real chicken. But that's the thing. You know that shit ain't happening. You can't. That's not how it's being made. You know that's not. You know, that's, and that's a thing. Cause I don't know what, I don't know what this is that I'm putting into my body and it's that cheap. And I'm not saying that you have to spend money in order to eat good because there's, there's been times I've spent money at Whole Foods and I got something rotten and, oh, and you, I was pissed. I'm like, I spent $20 on this, but you know, I don't, I don't trust, I don't trust the fast food industry, period. Perfect. Yeah, you shouldn't. I don't. Oh, but wait, Ronald McDonald's such a trustworthy character, isn't he? <laughs> I would. Marking it to the kids. We're having a great time at McDonald's that, I playground. Think, I think woo, Ronald McDonald woo, woo. touches kids. I really think he's a petty. Well, he touches them on the liver and he <laughs> makes them sick and fat. It does. 
<laughs> he touches, he gives them fatty liver and he makes, gives them diabetes and he gives them soda. Diabetes. Children should, I mean, they should never be drinking soda. I don't even think kids need to drink that much frickin' milk because milk just no. turns into sugar too. You don't need to drink all that milk. You do not. Give the children water. It's, it's not lemon. actually really good for uh, your colon anyway, drinking a Too lot of milk. milk. Yeah. Um, but juice is fine. I don't believe it depends what kind of juice too. Cause of course we grew up of like, I grew up with like sunny delight and Capri sun, juicy juice, 10% real juice. Yeah. Juicy. Yeah. The, the, the little juice the boxes. Bottom, it's yeah. It's contains 10% real juice. But um, my mom would sugar. limit me of when I could have that. Or she would limit when I could have a soda. Sure. It was not like, okay, you had one soda today. You're good. Everything else is going to be water. You get one juice and that's it. But also, I was the kind of kid where I would eat my vegetables, and I didn't like candy, so I was a weirdo kid. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but that you can teach children to be like that. They don't have to only like candy and chips. It's, it's what we—they know what we put in front of them. So if you—I mean, I'm a terrible person because I nanny, and I, I, give, I give him chocolate like once a week. But it's good chocolate. It's C's candy chocolate. It's, it's an experience. We go into the candy store. He gets— one candy because it's a sample. I divided him three and I let him eat little bits of it at a time. And um, that's your treat for the week. And that's his treat. And it's good chocolate. I, I'm not going to give the kid, you know, a Rocky Road bar or a Twix <laughs> or some crappy candy. I'm giving him the good, the good goods, right? They're like C's candy. I, I, I would give him Godiva. I, I would you, give him anything Belgian, Charles, Charles chocolates, any of those like hoity-toity like artisanal chocolates. But you, por- you portion control as well. Right. He's not eating. The only time I messed up was when I split a churro with him <laughs> and I realized how effective sugar is and what it really does to children. Um, I didn't realize that that Costco churro was going <laughs> to make him like that. He, we're on the bus leaving Costco after I've... I've convinced him that it's Disneyland because they both have churros. He's, he's convinced. The kid was double fisting uh, samples and he was, he's never been happier. He was like, he had a corn dog in one hand and oh this weird God. sandwich in the other and he's like he kept giving him food. I'm like, this is Disneyland. This is sample Disneyland, right? And he loves samples because he loves C's because he gets in there and he knows he gets a sample. He loves Trader Joe's because he knows he gets a sample. So I took him to the mother of all samples. Costco! And oh, He had the best time. So then we're leaving there, and I'm like, let's get a churro. So I eat. I ate half the churro. I might have eaten a little more than half. I hope so. But we get on the bus, and we're getting on the 27 going home. And usually he sits on my lap, and he'll... Sometimes he'll sit next to me, and he'll put his hand in my lap, and we'll hold hands. And sometimes he sits in my lap, and then he sort of falls asleep or whatever. But this time... He was in my lap. He started to get a little squirmy. And he, like, swooshed down in between my legs. He's standing on the ground. His arms are above me. And he starts shaking back and forth. He starts, like, whipping his head Uh-oh. back and forth, back and forth. He's flailing his body. And I'm holding on to his middle. Oh, like, with my, hyper with my arms. And I'm sort of, like, trapping him with my knees a little bit because he's, like throwing his body violently <laughs> to one side and then the other and it's like I I was 
I was like, it's the sugar. It's a sugar high. It's the sugar. The kid is freaking out with the sugar. And we're on the bus. And I was like, oh my God, we're on the bus. And he's going like, rah, rah, making crazy noises. And I know that it's the sugar. I know it because I'm the one that gave it to him. Because he wasn't like that before, obviously. he's never like that. He's never like that. He's never been like that. I've never given him that much sugar again. I didn't even think about it, honestly. Like, a churro is a delicious donut that's sweet and then it's covered in sugar (laughs) it's like but as an adult I just don't even think about it because I have been raised on a lot of sugar and I love churros and I love sugar and I love pastries but I I just didn't think about the metabolism of a child. You thought one wouldn't hurt or it's half, half one. A churro. Yeah, it's not like a whole and one. And it only cost a dollar. Like, <laughs> right? That's the other thing is when you think about like I, it's just sugar is cheap calories and I and watch that new documentary on Netflix, The Sugar Coated. It's really good. I have to check that out. It's really I mean it'll sh- I mean all this stuff and I'm so glad that like I don't know, Netflix is suddenly becoming the champion of like forward thinking documentaries with they they have those new list ones out, the ones that are the Latino list and the Oh, and I've the boomer seen those. list yeah. and the the woman list and the out list. I like the seventies one. They have a one a documentary uh, about the seventies where they go through each year, of course. Of the decade, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's history, but it's, and it, it, they're tapping into something is that they know that people, we've, we're not studying as much anymore. We're not reading as many books. We're not being as educated potentially through that media, but they're opening it up to documentary films and saying like, these are important things. People want to know if there's the new feminist, there's the new feminist one. There's a couple of feminist ones out right now. There's the one about boys and how we ruin them by teaching them not to cry and be a man and don't be a pussy and and all of these messages that we give to boys that no one's been thinking that harms them because we're always thinking I mean I'm always thinking about the messages we give to girls which I think are abhorrent about body image and all this stuff and at the same time now that's the other dichotomy that makes me crazy right now is that we tell girls be skinny be this be beautiful be white be be heroin chic be this be 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 perfect be have be 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 have luscious lips and have the hair and do the clothing and and wear the makeup and don't offend anybody just look pretty and smile but be this but then at the same time we don't give them they're we don't give them we don't uh, they're this beauty image is flawed because nobody actually looks like that when you do it with the with the photoshopping and the stuff we're saying hey be this but at the same time we're like we know that you're this and we're feeding you this and we're telling you we want you to be this and diet food in the 80s was all a sham because they took oh, out the totally. fat fat free fat free they took out the fat and they put in sugar because people don't like things that don't fat makes your mouth taste good it feels right nutra sweet and they took out the, the fake sugars that give you the cancer and then remember the potato chips that had the special they used an oil that wasn't yes. an oil and it gave you anal leakage yes because it went through your body this oil didn't stick inside your body. It didn't, it, it ran right through. So you'd get, you'd poop it all out. And so you wouldn't, the fat wouldn't affect you, but it's all 
fake? There was a cereal I used to eat when I was a kid, and it was like a brand cereal. Um, I remember they had a big recall because it was uh, messing up people's digestive system. Um, Too much brand. Uh, no, no. It was some kind of chemical that they were using in it. And I remember I was watching it, like, on the Today Show with my mom. She's like, oh, no, we have to throw that out. And so I remember we Cra- threw honey, that. Cracklin' Oprah? No, it wasn't Cracklin' Oprah. It Which was, I really enjoyed. I actually love Cracklin' Oprah. Yeah, it's a really delicious snack. I love grape nuts. Oh, I love grape old nuts. Old people cereal. Yeah. Um, grape nuts are great. They're they're awesome. They're neither a grape nor a nut, but they're no, delicious. They're delicious. But, but our, breakfast cereal is its own fucked up thing. Like oh, those are the, the ones kids. without sugar. But that we process it. We take the oatmeal and we grind it down and we puff it out or we take the rice and we do something with it and it's magic. Dude, raisin bran and like my grandfather loved tricks and oh. I just like all that sugar. I just even when I was a kid, I was just like, it's too sugary. I don't yeah. like it. It just didn't taste right. It tastes artificial to me. Right. I think that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't like candy that much because it tasted it didn't taste real. Right. And it, this strawberry mamba doesn't taste like a strawberry. Right. I, I hate I hate fake fake fruit flavors. They freak me out. I don't like. I them. do love Starburst though. Something about Starburst. But I, I know, mean, it's that weird waxy. It's the, it's the weird. Well, and that's the thing is we get we get this nostalgia from. I don't know, Halloween time or childhood Childhood with certain candies. Like I, I will always love certain candy. I will always love Twix. I, I actually, that is only the only one chocolate I will probably eat. And it has to be the peanut butter Twix. Oh really? See, I like the, I they like don't the make those anymore. I don't think though. I don't even know. They used to have a, or they made a dark chocolate Twix for a minute, but it's, it's a rare, it's a rare thing. But if I I will eat gummy bears, I just got back into gummy bears, and I will eat Starburst, and that's it, really. Try the new Trader Joe's. Um, they're organic, and they're Scandinavian swimmers. They're like Swedish fish, but they use vegetable dyes as their dyes. Like, like, dye. so, it's like, so it's like beetroot. It has like they're dyed with and they use like real fruit I have the gummy bear ones that I just got from yeah. Trader Joe's so that have the no artificial right yeah so and that's the other thing it's just like you know I, I'm a I'm a I'm a lush already so I already know I'm poisoning myself with my drinking right the least thing I could do is like be cautious of what do I eat you know, especially well, that's why I don't eat fast food. It's like certain meats. I can't eat everybody's meat. The thing, the thing that tra- cracks me up that Americans haven't figured out yet, and and that the I don't know who's the big industry pharmaceutical companies. I don't even know who's snowed us, but they've somehow the only things that can give us disease really that we have con- are the the things that highly affect whether we get disease or not. Right, are smoking, which we do to ourselves, eating which we do to ourselves and drinking, which we do to ourselves. <laughs> but we have to eat to live. We have to, but they've somehow convinced us that there's not a connection between that, that what you eat and how you live your life are somehow completely separate things that you can run and you can work out and you cannot drink and you cannot smoke and you can eat, eat, but Hey, eat all the stuff we're telling you to eat that we're bombarded by with our you know advertising industries and the thing I always go back to are cereal straws do you remember this no I the don't the cereal straw was the thing that came up in the early 2000s it's disgusting it's a cereal that they make 
into a straw and then they coat it on the inside either with strawberry filling or chocolate so that you take instead of putting cereal in a bowl and putting milk on it they would put the cereal in a glass and you suck it through a chocolate straw and then you eat the cereal as a stick it's like a candy stick straw that you drink milk out of that they were calling cereal straws and it was like chocolate coated that is highly disgusting it's but it's amazing that we're like we put the weird marketing and you put it on the tv and the kids are like cereal straw i'm mom dude get the cereal straws and then the mom goes oh god you know i got a coupon it's 250 and well okay each cereal straw has 180 calories but they're packaged together in two no one even gets that far no that that you're basically already looking at 360 calories it's a candy bar that you're going to add milk to, which is going to add another 100 calories. So you're giving your kid a balanced breakfast of 500 calories, but it's all just sugary, gooey nonsense. Boy, let me tell you, Saturday morning cartoons, those commercials, they knew what they were doing. They knew this is how we're going to get this demographic. They were really good. And where are the commercials for for eggplant? (laughs) <laughs> like da 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 eggplant. It's delicious. Support your eggplant farmers in California. They used to da, have those da, vegetable da, da, da. commercials. Well, I've never even seen these. You know, like, w- give me a tomato commercial. Like, it's so fresh. It's so sweet. It's delicious. They had the California raisins ones. Yeah. <laughs> I I just I want I want to see, you know, I want to see some commercials like for every, you know, tricks rabbit commercial for every quick you know sugar augmentation to milk that we show i think that we should show like oranges eat the whole thing get fiber it's delicious it's nutritious oranges i thought like i i think uh the florida oj company tried to do something like that when i was a kid with the orange juice and the orange itself to have kids eat more uh produce and vegetables i do remember something like that seeing something like that but very rare but But that wasn't attractive to like an eight-year-old sure it was it was just like oh games and sugar right and barbie right and barbie (laughs) yes sugar barbie and america which kind of now thinking about that coincides with each other like you got the sugar but you want to look like barbie yeah you want the best of both worlds I, i it's confusing me that people have confusion about the concept of what you put into your mouth is going to affect your body and the types of energy we put into our body are going to affect the kind of energy that we have in the world and maybe the reason that we sit around and watch tv all the time is because we like to eat but that's the thing about potato chips you know (laughs) they're so good and you can't just eat four potato chips Right. What, and, what, once you pop, you can't stop. Right. And so how do we <laughs> teach people about the portion control? And by the way, I fucking love Pringles. <laughs> Original Pringles are amazing. And you know what they are? They are dehydrated potato flakes. Really? They take a potato and they make it into mashed potatoes and then they dehydrate it. And then they glue it together with this stuff and they push it out. It's basically like, it's basically like mashed potatoes with salt that's extruded through the duck lips that goes foop, 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 and then it's fried and becomes uh, a Pringle. Yeah. So it, it's not like they slice a potato. It's that it's potato parts 
It's, it's potato reanim- reanimator. It's reanimated <laughs> potato. Absolutely. But, you know, I going back to you read a part in the book with the Laura Ingalls Wilder, how they were talking about sitting around the fire, eating the popcorn, popcorn. off the stove. Yeah. I do that. I don't have a fire, but I do pop my popcorn off the stove. Yeah, it's. I don't know why we do microwave popcorn. It, it's gross. It's terrible for you. It's too. horrible, and you can do it on the stove. It's really easy. Um, there's another way you can do it in your microwave if you want to do it by yourself. You get a paper bag that's clean. No, it can't have any ink on it because the ink will light on fire. Um, but you take a, like a lunch bag, put your popcorn in there, roll it up stick it in the microwave it'll pop just like the other kind of popping bags nice it, bu- 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 done. But, but i like my stove no the stove I, is I even better stove. the stove is great it just it, it it's all about patience and that's the thing because yeah. it's like baking a pie you know i have a plum tree we made a plum we have made a plum pie for the holidays awesome. and it's all about that eagerness and that patience to see like ooh, what's it going to taste like right that's what i like about cooking and doing my own things because it's the anticipation like i hope this doesn't suck does it suck i think i did a good job it's about you want to see what people's facial expression looks like too when you make something for them absolutely you know that's also the other thing that you take away from cooking and doing things on your own yeah you know because you want someone to say like, yeah, I'll come over for dinner because that person can cook. Absolutely. It you feels know? good that you know that you can, uh, well, you're manipulating them in a happy way because you're manipulating what they put into their body to serve as energy. Right. And, um, I, I'm, I'm down. This is uh this has been a fun and weird <laughs> AltaCast. I don't know how we do it every week. We, we make it through. <laughs> we do it. We do it. This time. So I, I recommend to you guys to all go read. West from home, the letters. You know what? Your guys aren't gonna like it. I just, I'm just, I'm obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder. Okay, I think that I, I, it's a class I would teach in college. Would be like how she affected feminism. The other thing that I would, I would, if I was ever to teach college, I would teach Stephen King, uh, the best storyteller of all time, uh, in, a great entertainer, and uh, how, how, in how to craft a story. So, and then, it, you know, in likability quotient, you got to follow Anthony Bourdain. He just talks like oh. himself. And when he writes, he talks like he writes. And he writes like he talks. And and uh, he's an entertaining fellow as well. He's honest. Very, he's very, he's very, very honest. honest. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't know about this place. Yeah. Ah! It all comes full circle. Exactly. Yay. Uh, well, thank you guys for listening to the AltaCast today. Uh, thank you, Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. Good luck in the marina this afternoon. <laughs> Um, yep. Yeah, hey guys, give us your money. Mutiny Radio. We're um, every month now. We're we're scraping by. If you want to be a uh, donor, go to Patreon. You can give us money every month through that. Uh, you can always donate on our PayPal, which is mutinyradiofm at gmail.com. Give us money through PayPal, or just come by to a show uh, every Friday. Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse, only five dollars. All that money goes to the station to keep this place open. So. Come on by. This week's show is a lot of fun. It's uh, School's Out for Summer, all teachers and ex-teachers. So uh, it should be a lot of fun. That would include you. I, I Actually, yeah, I used to be a credentialed high school teacher. So, yeah, it'll definitely include me this week. Uh, I got a lot of stories about <laughs> teaching those kids about drugs, man. Uh, real honest. Talk about honesty. Wow. Come to the show this Friday. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks again for joining us. Bye. Bye.
tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy Are you from tired San of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. 
But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. Yeah. Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship to your 20 Mission Hive vendor for a special 10% discount on the coolest, most original items in San Francisco. That's 20 Mission Hive with eight vendors and like them on Facebook at 20 Mission Hive. 20 Mission Hive for awesome events and updates. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. an underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 